Welcome to the Dr. Gabrielle Lyon Show, where I believe a healthy world is based on transparent conversations. Today's episode, I have Dr. Ted Naiman on. And listen, I swear I think this guy is a brother from another mother. We have incredibly similar views. He is a board-certified family practice physician, and he leads a major medical center in Seattle. His medical practice, which is one of the reasons I I really wanted to have him on, is that he not only reads a lot of the literature, but he interfaces with patients. And that part is the most valuable, especially when we're thinking about complex systems and how can we help the most amount of people. You have to be able to take the literature and implement it into real-life practice. We talk a lot about what blood markers that he uses. We talk a lot about what his perspective is on muscle, on body fat, and really how to move the needle. This was a great conversation, incredibly valuable for anyone who is interested in changing body composition or has blood markers that really need to be addressed. Let's dive in. I'd like to take a moment and really express the importance of blood biomarkers. Throughout this podcast, we've talked about triglycerides, we've talked about insulin, we've talked about fasting insulin. There are certain blood markers that I really believe are incredibly valuable. You should know what they are. Uh, A handful of those are hemoglobin A1c, fasting insulin, triglycerides, just to name a few. And if you are interested in that, which I strongly suggest (laughs) you should be, you can check out Insight Tracker. And that is a way in which they can obviously measure in your blood any of these markers, including your DNA, and they look at fitness tracking data to identify where you're optimized. They also do a wonderful job at explaining some of these markers. You will get a personalized action plan. Again, none of this matters if you don't take action, but knowing is the first step. So again, we've talked a lot about what blood work is important, and you can actually take health into your own hands by getting the data yourself. And the way you can do that is through Insight Tracker. Again, this is a company that will look at your blood biomarkers. And for a limited time only, uh, which is very generous of the sponsor, you will get 20% off the entire Insight Tracker store. Just go to insighttracker.com forward slash Dr. Lyon. That's insighttracker.com forward slash Dr. Lyon. Okay, back to the show. Dr. Ted Naiman, welcome to the Dr. Gabrielle Lyon show. Clever name, I know. Wow. <laughs> so Thank I, you. you know, I, was, <laughs> I was just saying that um, you are in very good company, very well-deserved company. This is a series on protein, nutrition, and really body composition, the other individuals in your series, which is the first series to be put out, are Dr. Stu Phillips, which of course you know, Dr. Donald Lehman, who you also know, Dr. Tracy Anthony, who actually came out of Don Lehman's lab, um, and yourself, a current practicing physician. Awesome. Love it. Yeah. Well, I mean, I I don't know Tracy, but... uh... 
Phillips and Lehman, those guys are amazing. So, like, I'm so honored. It just, uh, you know, it's just such an honor. And, you know, one of the reasons why I really wanted to have you on is out of all the physicians in the space, in the nutritional space, in the medicine space, you and I actually see eye to eye on quite a number of things, which is incredible. Um, and I would love for the, you to tell the listener just really in terms of your, let's start with your current dietary beliefs just in general. Gotcha. Yeah. So, well, first of all, you're right. I feel like you and I are, you know, separated at birth or identical twins. I don't know if that's possible or whatever, but uh, we do seem to have some very similar um, belief structures. And and I think that um, myself, I've evolved over time about uh, just not understanding nutrition at all and thinking vegetarianism was optimal to being, you know, dogmatically low carb and sucked into the whole paleo sphere and keto and all these other things. And and now I've arrived at this sort of place where I think I finally have a just enough knowledge to realize that um, all of these macros and all of these plants versus animals and carbs versus fat things are on U-shaped curves where there's too much or too little or just right. And now the goal is to try to optimize uh, for the individual, but really, 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 really big picture. If I'm zooming out, I'm looking at nutritional density versus energy density. If you want to really sum it up. So basically from a big picture perspective, you're saying nutrient density in term versus energy density, which I'm assuming that you're meaning just calories. I'm meaning specifically non-protein energy calories, which is basically carbs and fats. And so, you know, all of our problems are basically, um, you know, refined carbs and fats. That's pretty much what we're all afraid of. What what, what we're all afraid? Well, you know, questionably, because at least uh, I see a lot of people also afraid of protein. But I would say you and I both agree that the data really doesn't support that, regardless of where you get protein from. Um, in your clinic, you do a lot of nutritional recommendations. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, that's a just huge part of what I'm doing. And what is your foundational recommendations that you give people? Let's say uh, someone walks into your office, she's a perimenopausal woman, and you're going to give her practical information about what she should be eating. Gotcha. Well, okay. So like a really, really big picture. Every person who walks in is basically over fat and under muscled, period, full stop. They don't know it. Uh, it, it may show up as they don't like the way they look, or it may show up in their uh, poor metabolic health or their prediabetes or their dyslipidemia. Uh, but whether they know it or not, they walk in with too much fat and not enough muscle. And what they're really needing to do is recomp. And not just a one-time recomp, but a permanent lifelong uh, Sisyphean recomp where every single day you're trying to get a little bit more skeletal muscle and a little bit more uh, lean mass and a little bit less fat mass. You're basically just constantly recomping at all times, every person who walks in and with the diet side, it really does come down to prioritizing protein higher, which supports your lean mass, and uh, 
minimizing carbs and fats, especially high energy density refined carbs and fats, which are basically supporting your fat mass. And so it just kind of comes down to more protein, less non-protein energy in a, in a sustainable fashion so you can do it forever. And that's the really, 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 really big picture. Right. In terms of percentages, what do you typically recommend people have? Oh, well, okay, okay. So protein is what I'm focusing on most. And if you look at worldwide uh, hunter-gatherer macronutrient estimates, you know they're like 30-ish percent protein. And we have a lot of magical uh, <clears throat> data in the medical literature on 30% protein, where you basically cure 100% of prediabetes um, automatically on ad-lib diets, and people just automatically get better composition. So I'm a huge fan of 30% protein on just an ad-lib maintenance calorie diet for someone of a medium exercise amount. Now, per percents are really, really kind of bad because if you're um, you know, training for an Ironman, you're burning 5,000 calories a day, that protein percent is going to go way down and you actually do need way more non-protein energy. But you're just your average person who's just moderately active, um, who needs a long-term maintenance diet that's going to give them pretty good body composition and pretty good metabolic health. I'm usually targeting 30% protein um, uh, of calories. And I, I actually agree with you. I think that that's really sharp that you brought that up. Uh, although I asked the question about percentages, I'm not sure percentages are really the best way to do it because somebody could have a thousand calorie eating a thousand calories, and then we're looking at thirty percent uh, protein, and that's going to be vastly different than an individual who's having two thousand calories and a thirty percent uh, protein intake. So I, I actually really like that answer. Right, yeah, and the more active you are, the basically the lower you can get away with on the protein percent. If you're super active, you can just eat the standard American diet at like 12%, and you'll actually be fine. Um, uh, but if you're very, very sedentary and your calorie plane is just flying one foot off the ground, you really need a high, much higher protein percentage um, in order to not gain a billion pounds. Yes, a billion pounds would be incredibly uncomfortable. And, you know, what I think that you're referring to really is there's two ways to stimulate skeletal muscle, and that's either exercise or dietary protein, and you have to balance that. The other aspect of that is when you think about protein, is there a gram a per, is there a gram per pound ideal body weight? What kind of recommendations do you typically give individuals? Right, right. So if I if I was just, you know, <clears throat> if I was in, running an intergalactic zoo for aliens who had like a couple million humans in an enclosure and they're like, you just need to come up with a diet that will make all these humans look and feel and perform pretty good so they, they stay alive in our zoo, right? I would basically be choosing one gram per pound of ideal body weight for the height of the individual as a really rough starting point. So my general advice to most people is a gram per pound of your ideal body weight for your height. And so um, that's not like how much you want to weigh or how much you do weigh, which could be like 600 pounds or something completely out of whack, but it's basically what you should weigh if you had like perfect body composition. So that's my target for most people. 
And then what about carbohydrates and fats? How do you determine, or do you, let me ask you this, do you determine dietary recommendations for individuals based on caloric consumption? Do you identify the calories or is, are they eating to satiation? How do you kind of work with the individuals in your clinic? Well, uh, the reality is every single human on earth is eating an ad-lib caloric diet and they have been doing so their whole life. Like the whole planet is just an ad-lib diet experiment where everyone eats until they're not hungry. So I don't care about calorie limits because no one's gonna follow those. It's like a joke. Like so everyone will eat until they're not hungry, period. And so I'm infinitely more interested in satiety per calorie. So what diet is going to make you stop eating at uh, appropriate number of calories rather than actually just focusing on the calories. Um, I mean, <clears throat> calories matter and you, you know, obviously have to worry about calories, but instead of like telling someone, this is how many calories you should be eating. It's like, these are the foods you could choose that would give you higher nutrient density, lower energy density, higher satiety per calorie, and you would automatically eat the right amount. And you would automatically match your intake to your expenditure with these foods. So if you're working out more, you're gonna eat more and you're gonna be fine. And so I don't really like to give people a prescribed amount of calories. I really don't. So people always probably ask you, what do you eat in a day? Right. Isn't that so funny, right? Like, what do you eat in a day? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and, and yeah, I, I mean, basically where I'm at is a kind of a very light intermittent fast, like a 16-8, and I, in my eight-hour window, I have a, a whole bunch of protein in the first meal, um, a whole bunch of protein in the last meal. So I'm book I'm bookending the feeding period with lots of protein, so I have, you know, plenty of aminos flying around for any kind of muscle. So why do you do that? I'm just curious. Oh, where, right. where did you Yeah. I want I want uh, amino acids available for m muscle protein synthesis basically. And so what I've found is that if you bookend your feeding period um, with lots of protein, then you can kind of get by with two meals and a snack a day, or maybe three meals a day. And, uh, you know, this is just a really good way to get a little bit of intermittent fasting so you're more in touch with hunger and fullness and you get to eat larger, more satisfying meals and you get to uh, run your body a little bit on stored body fat so you're not just tied to, uh, you know, glycemic foods all day long. And so it's, it's a really nice, like... And again, intermittent fasting is on a U-shaped curve where if you just ate once a year, that's not going to turn out so good. But if you just constantly eat like nonstop, that's not good either. So I, I for myself, it's this kind of light 16-8, uh, really larger protein focused first and last meal bookending the window, light snack or a little meal in the middle. Um, <clears throat> everything's built around high quality, lean mostly animal proteins and my you know, absolute favorites are fish and seafood anything out of the ocean um any kind of fermented low carbon low fat dairy like greek yogurt cottage cheese or something like that um <clears throat> i'm eating basically fruits and vegetables and i'm trying to get most of my nutrition in a cellular form rather than acellular so i'm eating a lot of um, actual food you know lean meat produce and stuff like that you know, I think it's very interesting. I think that we were separated at birth. And I'm curious as to, number one, how long it took you to come to this 
realization, right? So you've been in practice for how long now? Uh, I got out of residency in 2000. So I'm like Methuselah. I'm so old. I mean, I'm 50. I'm extraordinarily You look old. amazing. Oh, you well, look amazing. Well, thank you. Congratulations. Congratulations. Awesome. Thank you. Um, so the, uh, the reason I ask you now, anybody listening would say, wow, when we as scientists, physicians, people interested in nutrition, we believe one thing when we start. And typically, which you and I were talking offline about blood testing, which we'll circle back to, is that, you know, we believe one thing and, you know, we're very young in practice. And then a decade later, some things stay and some things change. And I'm curious as to now, first of all, number one, I absolutely agree with what you're doing. You are bolusing and bookending protein, which I believe is an incredible way to do it while being able to maintain body composition. And I just find it really interesting. And I'm curious as to how you came up with that strategy for yourself in terms of that protocol, first meal of the day, last meal of the day, optimize for muscle protein synthesis at at least 50 grams of protein and then a smaller meal. Was there something that happened? Was there a paper that you read? Was there a transition for patients that you saw that kind of created that for yourself? Um, <clears throat> I mean, honestly, it's just some weird integration of having tried every possible permutation myself and, and seeing patients all day, every day, trying every single permutation. I owe a lot of this to my patients because uh, they're crazy enough to have tried every single thing, you know, uh, extended fasting for weeks, uh, one meal a day for months, you know, these zero carbohydrate carnivore diets, like just pure keto. Uh, and, and then I've got like, you know, people doing the Dr. McDougall starch solution and I've got, you know, raw vegans and I've got, you know, I've just seen every, because I am interested in diet, I, I basically just get this nonstop um, supply of patients who've tried every single crazy diet thing you can think of. And then over time, I just take all of this experience and kind of uh, realize that there are some sort of universal principles here. And you really want a little bit of every single one of them. And I'm like, oh, wow, you actually want to pull every little lever moderately and be a little bit high protein and a little bit low carb and a little bit low fat and a little bit higher fiber and a little bit lower energy density and a little bit of intermittent fasting and a little bit of protein um, timing. And you just kind of want to, um, each one of these is like a little bit right. And then people will jump on one thing and have this unifocal over-reliance where that's their only strategy, but it's only gonna get you so far when you try to do it harder, you just things get worse. And so it's all about like using every lever a little bit. Um, I, I think that that is incredible. And it's so interesting to hear you talk. And again, you are the first physician on that sees patients in the same capacity that I do. And I cannot express how similar our views are, which I think is incredibly unusual. Um, and when you talk about these universal principles, you also mentioned that you have patients in all kind of domains and beliefs, right? So you have vegans, vegetarians, and you yourself are, sounds even almost pescatarian. Is that where you're falling right now? 
Um, I mean, I'm definitely not a pescatarian, and I do eat other lean meat, but I, I tend to favor lean meat, so I do eat, you know, I'll eat uh, uh, skinless chicken breast, and I'll eat uh, uh, bison and venison and very lean ground beef, And but uh, what I, <clears throat> I think where I'm at is that before I was um, dogmatically low-carb keto, just eat the fattiest ribeye you How can long? get. How long were you? Oh gosh. <laughs> How long were you dramatically low carb keto? I mean, I would say I was just dogmatically low carb for a decade. Was there a reason? Uh, oh, I think I think I really just didn't understand everything as well as I do now. And I saw success with low carb. So uh, I basically figured, oh, if low carb is good, then zero carbs the best and the lower the better and then if low carb is good high fat must be good and then you just end up just eating like 100 percent lard and then that's like the that's the logical final destination of low carb is that good. is hilarious <laughs> we're not suggesting that anybody go on the lard diet uh, Dr. Naiman may be putting out there in the future, but um, I mean, but I've literally seen patients. How was my mom joke? <laughs> I've seen patients go on fat fasts and that, and actually tried the sorts of things, and I've seen amazing, crazy, mostly bad stuff that is mind blowing. And it's things like that that helped me evolve over time and be like less dogmatic and less clueless. Yeah, I. <laughs> I think that that is fascinating when you said, so you said something and you said, I understand things differently now. What, what do you think was the biggest? So there's that global perspective that you said, was there something that like a key paper or something that you read that really kind of changed your understanding that, and by the way, I am not low carb myself. Um, I also came to the conclusion and I was for a decade high you know, driven to be low carb. I was also moderate to low fat. I was never keto. It never really worked for me. But I'm curious, was there a thing that happened? Was there a paper that you read? Was there an aha moment that changed your insight? There was no one solitary aha moment, but the biggest thing for me is having patience um, do the exact opposite of what I believe and be in amazing shape. Like I would see, you know, high carb, low fat, vegan uh, physique athletes who are just crushing it. And I'm like, wow, this black swan just punched me directly in the face. I really have to reevaluate. Like I, I am like actually totally wrong. And then I'm like, well, I know something about low carb is good. And so it just took a really long time and just seeing all of the opposites and the black swans for me to realize oh hey that's just one possible lever where you can a slightly lower refined carbohydrate and high energy density carbs and glycemic uh, index carbs and you'll basically improve satiety per calorie and you improve n nutritional density versus energy density and you improve uh, the protein percentage and all of these things and oh but hey over here is a vegan just eliminating saturated fat from their diet which by the way is completely unnecessary element of uh in the human diet and so i see vegans treating saturated fat the same way the paleo keto low carb sphere treats sugar 
And in fact, they're actually flip sides of the same coin. Like saturated fat and sugar are two things that humans never need to eat. They both give you, like in experimental models, you just get some just really horrific, like fatty liver and fattening and all sorts of stuff. Uh, you combine them together and you make the most fatogenic, hedonic, stuff on earth and uh so like like i realized oh hey there's this whole mirror universe that's low fat and avoiding saturated fat just as hard as i've been low carb and avoiding sugar and guess what you get the exact same isocaloric results either way and so now it, it, and it just took all of this like being wrong having things in my face telling me how wrong i was um to really rethink my worldview and just kind of start over and that's how I got to where I'm at. You know, I, I want to point out something that may be obvious, but it's incredible, incredibly unusual. You were so open-minded and curious and not stuck in your own bias that I think has allowed you to evolve. Um, I'm sure that you would agree with that. And, and that in and of itself is incredibly unusual in medicine and especially in nutritional sciences oh well yeah yeah thank you like i am not afraid to admit that I, i'm like a total dumbass and i've been just extraordinarily wrong over and over and over again i mean i was a vegan which by the way i think you were an engineer before right, right. you were in some kind of okay so for the listener you at when you joke and call yourself a dumbass you were actually an engineer before you were a physician uh well i did get a mechanical engineering degree and i actually never worked as an engineer i just went straight back to medical school <laughs> okay um but a, a, an interesting perspective is that you're not afraid number one to question and number two to be wrong which i think makes for a profoundly effective and efficient physician or care provider um in terms of things that perhaps have changed. I know, you know, right now people talk about calories in, calories out, the carbohydrate insulin model. Have you kind of thought about the different domains of, shall I say, fatness or where we get fat? Or um, maybe even a better question would be, where do you think people are really misunderstanding the science to where you see it now after 20 some years? Well, <clears throat> sure. Uh, that's a great question. Now, one of the things for me is that um, I, I think understanding personal fat threshold and over fatness, even in very, very thin people, uh, helps me to understand that like weight is fairly meaningless. BMI is fairly meaningless. And I see people who are just horrifically over fat and diabetic at extraordinarily low body fat percentages because they're over their genetic personal fat threshold. And uh, I, I've had, you know, I've, I've had the privilege of working with patients with a various amounts of lipodystrophy. And when you see someone who <clears throat> looks ripped and jacked and has almost no subcutaneous fat, um, but their waist circumference at the belly button is, you know, bigger than it should and you do any sort of cross-sectional imaging on them and they have whoa shocking amounts of liver fat and a visceral fat and their triglycerides are through the roof and they're fully diabetic and you see this uh, enough times and you're like wow um this is over fatness 
at any body fat percentage. It literally doesn't matter. And then I and then I realized that, you know, triglycerides, for example, I used to think oh, your triglycerides are high because you either ate too many carbs or drank too much alcohol. And that's completely wrong. Uh, triglyceride is- Tell us why, tell us triglyceride why. Triglyceride is yeah. fat energy in the bloodstream that has no place to go because your fat cells don't want it because they're full. So if you take someone who's very um, viscerally lean and way under their personal fat threshold, their fasting triglycerides are super low. And then after an oral fat tolerance says that they only have a slight rise in their triglycerides and the fat cells just suck the triglycerides right out of the bloodstream on the first pass. But then if you have anyone who's over fat, even if they look thin, even if their body fat percent's low, their tri fasting triglycerides are really high. After they eat fat, it goes up really, really high. And you just see all of these triglycerides and it has literally nothing to do with carbohydrate intake. I've seen uh, patients on a zero carb strict ketogenic diet and their triglycerides are in the thousands and they're just getting more and more diabetic. And, and, and it's seeing things like this that's made me realize has literally nothing to do with carbohydrate per se. It's just over fatness. And every gram of fat that you eat gets stored in your fat cells unless you happen to burn it off with your activity, which nobody's doing enough of. So like you will just steadily get fatter and more diabetic and more over fat and higher fasting insulin and higher fasting triglycerides and eventually diabetes. And um, so now it's just all on this giant metabolic spectrum of basically how over fat you are on any energy macro, carbs or fat, and at any level of body fat percent, because what's really going on is you've filled up what few fat cells you Everything. have. This is a great time to thank one of the sponsors of the show, First Form. First Form, I've actually been working with them since 2018, and I love them as a company, and I absolutely love their products, their customer service, this is not just a company, this is a movement. And because of our topic today, I'd love to share with you one of my favorite products that we use in our house, Pure Whey Protein Isolate. It is sweetened with stevia. It has an optimal amount of branched chain amino acids, and it is cross-flow micro-filtered. Very easy to mix. It is challenging to get your protein needs met. Oftentimes people are very busy. And of course, you know, we talk about the first meal of the day being most critical to stimulate muscle protein synthesis. If you are a fan of protein powders and utilize them, I highly, highly recommend their Pure Whey Isolate. You can go to their website at First Form. That's the number one, S-T-P-H-O-R-M.com backslash D-R-L-Y-O-N. And again, they can be used for the first meal of the day if you choose to use them pre-workout, post-workout. It's a great way to meet your protein needs. Okay, back to the show. So how do you have, and, and I wanna go through kind of the labs that you used to get, the labs that you get now. In terms of a patient that comes in who is skinny fat, let's just call them skinny fat, uh, you mentioned a personal fat threshold. 
how does someone determine the their personal fat threshold? Is that just based on seeing that litany of labs that you had mentioned, or is there some other way to determine a personal fat threshold? Well, you can literally just actually measure your waist at the uh, belly button, at the umbilicus, and it should be less than half of your height. So your waist circumference at the belly button should be less than half your height. And it's if it's higher than that, you're almost certainly in some sort of trouble. And that's just the low budget way to do it. Um, in terms of lab work, I do love fasting triglycerides. This is a very, very good way to see if you're over fat. Um, it, it kind of the lower, the better on triglycerides. Like I'll see, you know, physique athletes who are, you know, cutting for a show or something and their triglycerides will be 20. Um, but then I'll see it have that's a skip. low, by the way, that's very low. Yes, yeah. that's extremely low. Uh, but then I'll see some <laughs> like, you know, just skinny fat person who has a normal BMI, um, but they're under muscled. They have some skinny fat, you know, sarcopenic internal obesity and their triglycerides are, you know, 500. And so it, it's, uh, I love triglycerides. Fasting insulin is. So wait, so where's your marker? So where's your threshold for the number? So basically the lower, the better. But would you say triglycerides less than 100 would be ideal correct, for you? Correct, correct. If you have triple digit triglycerides in a fat, if you've fasted for nine to 12 hours and your triglycerides are triple digits, you're officially over fat, full stop. Like th this is something, I mean, I, I guess you could do like some massive sugar or alcohol overfeeding the day before and have some residual triglyceride issue the next day and not really be over fat. You just tried to pack too much fat in your liver the day before um, from sugar and alcohol. But like basically um, your fasting triglycerides really should be under 100 for everyone. And elite, you'd have to be under 70 for me to really give somebody a gold star. Oh, I love that. I love that we've got some num numbers. So under 100 fasted, under 70. You know, you had mentioned this post-feeding triglyceride challenge. Do you do that? Oh, Have God, you, no, you know? never. <laughs> like so from a first do no harm principle, I would never give anyone an oral fat tolerance test. Um, I just refer to that because it is in the medical literature where you basically drink heavy cream and they measure your triglycerides every hour or, you know, uh, over time afterwards, just like you would consume glucose in a, uh, you know, oral glucose tolerance test. Yeah, you know, and something really interesting to mention about triglycerides for the listener is that exercise and actually aerobic exercise can change triglyceride levels, even if it's transient, it typically happens one to two days later. Um, and, and I just think that is so fascinating. And, and typically, you're talking about one hour of moderate intensity, uh, five to 600 calorie type activity, um, which I think is really fascinating that regardless of weight loss, we can actually move uh, transiently, at least triglyceride levels. So I just want to oh, throw yeah. that out there as something yeah, very I interesting. Mean, yeah, that's basically liver fat. So the very last fat you pack in is in your liver and you can deplete that and just, you know, you just do, do a really heavy workout and you'll be temporarily non-diabetic just for maybe a few hours until you eat again. But like, it's the very fastest way to fix yourself. Very interesting. It's real, and you and I both really believe in a lot of activity, especially over the years. I'll shoot you a message and say, hey, I have this patient who is very resistant to weight loss. 
And you, do you remember what your answer was to me? You might not. But it was do more activity. And you were talking about um, a lot of activity in terms of um, how, you know, for someone who is weight loss resistant, what kind of activity levels do you typically recommend? Got it. Well, so if you're, if you're really trying to lose weight, you got to be down, uh, you know, maybe 500 calories a day in terms of calorie balance. And you do not want that all to come from your diet. You, you really want that 50-50 diet and exercise. You basically want your caloric deficit to be exactly 50% um, diet and 50% exercise. And I'm talking about uh, act general activity here, not specifically resistance training, just focused on um, maximal muscle tension and muscular hypertrophy. Like everybody should be doing full body resistance exercise at least twice a week, maybe three times a week, push pull legs, uh, super high intensity of effort, uh, very high stimulus to fatigue ratio, just putting the maximum tension in your muscles for as long as you can to get maximum skeletal muscle that's unrelated i'm talking about just like either walking or doing cardio or any other form of you know cardio exercise you pretty much want half of your caloric uh <clears throat> deficit to come from your diet uh, oh and by the way it, on the diet half every single calorie of your caloric deficit should come exclusively from carbs and fats not from protein period so like yes. you're basically and, trying and why to and you want to share yes Right. So why? Uh, so you need every bit of protein you're eating now. Everyone's eating to satiety, and one of the main things that's getting them there to satiety is the amount of protein and fiber you're currently eating. So when you're trying to lose weight, you literally only want to remove non-fiber carbs and fat from your diet. Um, and the first thing on the chopping block are the acellular refined carbs and fats, the added carbs and the added fats, and those need to go. But you need the exact same amount of protein or more um, and the exact same amount of fiber or more. So you're literally trying to just have a 250 calorie deficit from uh, empty calorie carbs and fats, which is pretty easy to do in the... I was just going to say that's a great strategy. And, and um, then on the... You know, I wanted to... Oh, go ahead. Yeah, go ahead. Oh, and then on the exercise side, you're asking me like, how much would that take? Well, that would basically be about a half an hour of really hard cardio a day. Like if you did, um, you know, a half, you could do 15 minutes of insane cardio, half an hour of moderate intensity cardio, or an hour of a lighter cardio, and that's pretty much going to get it done. And anyone who's trying to lose fat, who's not doing at least a half an hour of exercise every day is basically just spinning their wheels. Um, you heard it here, at least a half an hour of exercise. Um, these are all really great recommendations and very applicable to anybody who is watching. And they make a lot of sense. Circling back to lab values, the labs that you did when you were first in practice. Well, actually, let's start with the labs that you're doing now. We cover triglycerides. And the reason I'm asking this is because right now we have access to so many different labs, right? We do triglycerides, insulin, HOMA IR, particle counts, everything. And I think that the more advanced we get or the more time we spend seeing patients, it kind of goes back to the, I don't know, the most fundamental. Would you agree with that? 
most fundamental labs? Absolutely. And, and like, honestly, in the past, I had a lot of functional medicine training and a lot, you know, I've done a lot of advanced lab things in the past where I was doing all of these crazy, expensive, ridiculous lab tests. And now, wow, I've gotten to the point where I look at all these labs and I'm like, this is all just completely worthless. Like all these labs are going to do is tell me you're overfat and undermuscled and your metabolic health sucks. Well, I already knew that just by glancing at somebody when they walked in the door. So what is that going to really tell? It's not going to tell me nothing. It's not. I, I, what I know is they really need to work on diet, work on exercise, get more muscle, less fat. That's going to fix every single lab that I didn't like. Why am I doing them? They're completely non-helpful. They're not value added. They're super expensive. And they're basically just all telling me the exact same thing. So uh, the vast majority of labs I used to order, I never, ever, ever order anymore because I've realized this is not actionable. This is not value added. This is not telling me anything I didn't already know. And so now I'm just super, super minimalistic because most of that stuff is crap. I hate to say it. And I I don't want to be mean or throw anyone under the bus, but... Which I actually have not heard you do, you know, just in other interviews anyway. So nobody, we're all friends here. Well, let's put it this way. When I was dumber in the past and just didn't know, I was like, didn't know as much. I would order more stuff because I kind of really didn't know. And I was just guessing. I was just shotgunning things. I'll order every little lab and then maybe something will pop up and I'll kind of get a clue. And I see people doing that today. And I'm specifically going to look at some naturopaths that um, I (laughs) interact with uh, occasionally. Uh, I I see them ordering just an absurd level of lab testing, like thousands of dollars of labs. And I'm like, every single thing on this list is a complete joke. This is a complete non-evidence-based, non-value-added, shotgun approach, ridiculous joke. And they order the same panel on everybody. They have like this pre-printed lab sheet and they're ordering like $3,000 worth of crap. I'm like, this is all worthless. If you would just, you know, just just do push-ups for 10 minutes and go eat some lean, uh, go eat, uh, you know, some lean protein in a salad, you'd literally be better off than every test on this sheet. So I'm, I'm really pushing back against um, some of the, shotgun lab stuff that's not evidence-based or value-added. And I'm super minimalistic now. So let's talk about the minimalistic approach, which I actually really appreciate. We covered, number one, triglycerides. And we said the lower the better, typically under 100. And we also said that you're not doing the provoked uh, triglyceride or fat test. Uh, And then you'd start to mention insulin. And then I had to jump in there and, and ask you about exercise because it reminded me of a conversation that we'd had. But let's go back to insulin. I'm assuming that that's number two on the list. And, and maybe it's not in a prioritization uh, I almost, schedule, but... I almost never order fasting insulin. Um, I used to order it all the time. And I don't like it that much anymore because there's so much 
Uh, it's so transient and there's so much noise. Like I could overeat for a day or two and double my fasting insulin very, very easily. Or I could just undereat for a day or two and cut it in half. And so that's a lot of, that's way, it's way too um, variable, way too transient, way too dynamic. Um, and I'm like, wow, what would be a less labile? Oh, fasting triglyceride. Or how about just a freaking waist to height ratio? And now I'm back to a test that costs nothing because that's going to tell you where you've been at for, you know, weeks and months and years. And so fasting insulin, um, it's fascinating in the med. I love it in the medical literature because I'm that's what I'm always looking at in studies. Because if somebody significantly lowered fasting insulin with an intervention, okay, that I'm paying attention to that because you're literally less fat, if you know what I'm saying. And and if you look at the uh, uh, the like the the uh, <clears throat> NHANES data uh, in the U.S. over the past 50 or 60 years of the obesity epidemic, fasting insulin's just been going up in a straight line. It was like five, and then it was eight, and then it was 10, and then it was 12, and now this last year, it's like 15 and a half, or it's just gone up along with the obesity curve. So um, so it's, it's interesting from a big picture point of view, but I hardly ever do it on individuals because I can just look at your... Um, body. I can just glance at your waistline and uh, your fasting triglycerides and have a pretty good idea. Okay. Well, then what would be the next kind of lab that you order? I, I do look, I do a lot of A1Cs. I do like A1C. Um, <clears throat> there are pro Which is a three month um, measure of where your blood sugar has been. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Hemoglobin A1C. Love hemoglobin A1C. Uh, doing a ton of those. Now that 52% of adult Americans are pre-diabetic or diabetic, probably everyone who walks in should get an A1C and it should probably be repeated yearly. Um, you know, that's, that is something I order a lot of. I do also look at a full fasting lipid panel and I do like HDL. Um, there are some major problems with HDL. Um, there's a lot of uh, <clears throat> racial and ethnic uh, disparities there where all my patients from Southeast Asia, if they're completely elite and ripped and jacked, their HDL has finally gone up to a 40 and they're in like amazing shape uh, versus like, uh, you know, uh, uh, Eastern European person, Caucasian, they're going to start out at a 40 if they're in bad health and then it'll be like a 70 if they're um, really elite. So, so there are huge uh, racial and ethnic issues with HDL, but I do like in general triglyceride to HDL ratio. I do look at HDL. Um, I do think that's um, valuable. The hemoglobin A1C, where do you like to see people? In an ideal world, do you have a number? Well, yeah, ideally it's basically sub five. So okay, which by the way, I have actually never been at sub five, not even. And close. a lot of people aren't, and, and so that's why there are problems with A one C. So if your if your red cells are just very long lived, and they would be perhaps on a higher protein yeah, diet, you might have a higher A one C. So it's not really quite fair. You know what I mean? Um, it, and then if somebody has any sort of uh, any kind of nutritional deficiencies, B12, folate, iron, um, you're going to skew the A1C. Um, there are some issues with A1C. There's some, 
you know, hemoglobin patterns that affect it. And so like, I have to take it with a grain of salt, but <clears throat> mostly I just want to see people at least in the normal range. And I'm not going to really ding someone who's in the mid fives uh, if everything else is great, because I know that there is some variability there. And then the HDL, I really love that you brought that up. I also think that HDL is very important and, and can be impacted by exercise, which is amazing. You can increase HDL by exercise. And most of the studies have been in aerobic exercise. The number, again, there is, it seems as if there's some kind of genetic variability, whether, you know, ideally you want it probably 50 to upper 60s. Would you agree? Do you have kind of a, again, it's very difficult to control and and create a linear increase, but, you know, I guess beyond 65, there is no more cardioprotective benefits, at least what I've seen in the literature. Do you have um, a, per, a number that you really like for HDL? Yeah, I mean, for, for um, most people, it's over 50. That, that, I think that's a really good HDL target. That's, that is kind of racist as hell because I do have so many patients uh, from Southeast Asia um, who are just in great shape. And they took their HDL from a 20 to like a 45. And now they're just in amazing health. You know what I'm saying? And so it's just really not quite fair to certain um, groups. But uh, but yeah, like, you know, for the average person I see, over 50 would be good. Okay. What's next? Anything else? I know you do a CBC and a CMP. I basically do a C CBC and CMP on everyone. On a CMP, I'm really looking at the transaminases, ALT, AST, which gets screwed up with resistance training. So if you lift it heavy, um, it's going to be higher. The couple of days before, you can, like, I've had, you know, ALT over 100, very more than once just from lifting. Um, <clears throat> So, but you really want, in someone who hasn't done a heavy workout, you want those to be, you know, nice and low. 20 would be, 20s would be good um, or, or lower. Um, and that's something else that's just been steadily going up. The normal range just gone up several times during my career just because everyone's like a little bit fatter, you know. And so... <laughs> I do. I'm looking at uh, blood urea nitrogen, and typically higher is better because you're actually eating adequate protein. <laughs> amazing. I again, these are amazing uh, pearls for individuals. So BUN is not necessarily. I mean, of course, it depends on the big picture. But what um, Dr. Naiman is saying, Naiman is saying, is that it is a reflection of your dietary protein intake, which is amazing. In terms of AST, ALT, is there a number where you begin to get concerned? Is it in the upper 30s, 40s, where you're like, hey, you know, we really need to begin to address this? Do you have a certain threshold for concern with well, those numbers? Yeah, anything over a 40 is just clearly really bad. Okay. Um, as long as you're not training really hard before. Right, right, right. Which is a big confounder, unfortunately. Mm. Any other labs? that you really think are important? Um, well, I do CBC on everyone and I'm looking at, you know, you know, red cell size for any sort of nutritional deficiencies there. I'm doing comprehensive metabolic panel. I'm looking at blood urea nitrogen. I'm looking at creatinine, which I actually like a little on the higher side because that's basically muscle mass. So if you're, if you're borderline high BUN and creatinine, I'm actually pretty happy. I'm not calling a nephrologist. I'm just like, oh, hey, you're lifting and eating protein. This is great. You're 
better than the average person. Um, I'm looking at the transaminases, like you said, if there's an issue with um, <clears throat> maybe a overlap with muscle breakdown from resistance exercise, I'll add on a GGT, which tends to be a little more specific <clears throat> to the liver. Um, I'm doing- And the lower, the better for GGT as well? Do you feel that the lower, the better? yeah, the lower, the better. I mean, I'm sure if somebody had like liver failure and they had a zero, that would be bad. There's probably a, a, a low where it's bad, but not in my everyday practice. Um, lower is better, pretty much. And uh, so I'm doing, uh, I do a lot of A1Cs. I do check thyroids frequently because we have just an epidemic of uh, Hashimoto's in this country. It's like, you know, uh, just a very high percentage of people who come in. So I'm doing a lot of um, TSHs. And that's, a that's you know, uh, I do other, you know, I'll, I, I tend to like PSAs in men. I'm also doing some, uh, you know, in older men, I'm looking at testosterone levels. I'm also checking things like that, um, hormonal issues. But um, for the most part, it, I'm your average person, I'm just doing like maybe a CBC, CMP, A1C, lipids, TSH, that's about it. So you keep it very simplistic and streamlined. That is different than it was before in your practice, which you were getting a substantially a substantial amount of other blood work, which is interesting. You've really become a, mim a minimalist, right? Absolutely. Yeah. And, and, and pretty much everything. You know, in terms of medications for weight loss, do you pre prescribe medications for weight loss? Are there things that are your go-to? What is your perspective in terms of medication? Yeah, I mean, loss? I prescribe everything. I prescribe fentramine, Contrave, Qsymia, uh, semaglutide, Wegovy. I prescribe it all. I'm familiar with it all. I'm uh, using any, uh, and again, I'm using any lever I can pull, whether it's uh, bariatric surgery, you know, gastric um, sleeve or uh, uh, medication. Um, obviously, my favorite weight loss drug is semaglutide, which is basically just Same. a satiety Same. hormone. Um, it's yeah. shockingly expensive. Uh, this is a drug that basically, so, okay, when you eat protein and fiber, uh, the digestion is so slow. Let, let's say you ate, you know, three pounds of skinless chicken breast and asparagus. It's going to take so long to digest. It, it actually distends the, mechanically the lower part of the small intestine and your small intestine emits these incretins, this uh, GLP-1 that says, oh, do not eat anything more because you're, it's going to take us 12 hours to digest this and you are not hungry. Please do not eat some more. And semaglutide is basically just a long-acting agonist of this same GLP-1 system. And so you kind of feel like you just ate uh, three pounds of skinless chicken breast and asparagus um, a couple hours ago all day long. It's amazing. And it's very interesting that the best weight loss drug on the planet is really just affecting satiety and satiety per calorie, which has been my focus um, recently. And uh, so I do like it. And I have to say it's, you know, $600 a month. Most insurance will not pay for it unless you have a diagnosis of diabetes. And I uh, will say that you can actually accomplish the same thing by literally eating chicken breast and asparagus multiple times a day, which is <laughs> cheaper. Just throwing that out there. It is cheaper. I will also agree with you. Uh, semaglutide is my number one go-to medication. And I think it's important 
to bring up the fact that there are certain things that are evidence-based and work really well. And there's no shame in medication. Obviously, you check with your physician. We're not telling you to do it or not do it, um, not giving you medical advice here. But I think that some people carry shame with this idea that they are relying on something external. And from my perspective is you have to minimize the friction, right? This kind of internal friction of any kind of emotional burden that weight is putting on an individual. So I believe that medication, while you definitely, you have to have diet and exercise, but also utilizing a medication if it suits you can very much alleviate friction for change. Um, so I'm not against it at all. And I, and I, and I, the reason I say that is I think Ted people really bring it up in a way that they say, oh, well, you should try to do everything all natural. And why, right? What kind of, what we have modern medicine, why would we do that? Yeah, and it's just, it's not fair to certain people with certain genetic issues, like like my patients with, uh, um, uh, basically, if you have lipodystrophy, we give you injectable leptin, right? Metroleptin injections, and it's life-changing. So this is, um, you know, this is someone who has basically a quasi-genetic problem and you're giving him this drug and they finally just lose a bunch of, they don't lose much weight because they didn't weigh too much to begin with, but they lose a couple of pounds of liver fat and visceral fat and boom, their diabetes is cured. It's a, it's a crazily um, effective medicine. It doesn't work on your average person, by the way. So don't try to go to your doctor and get a leptin injection. It's not gonna Heads do underneath the, the table injecting himself. No. Um, I am curious, uh, do you have a mentor? Do you have someone that you've learned from? Uh, again, I just find it so fascinating that we have come to the same place. And I just don't know, is there someone that's really been inspiring to you or certain scientists that you really kind of collaborated with? Anything like that? Oh, wow. Okay. So I, I kind of don't. Like, I'm so jealous of you and Dr. Lehman. Because like, if, if I had Dr. Lehman like, helping me out, I would have probably gotten to where I'm at faster. So I'm, I'm super jealous. I'm a little bit bitter, to be honest. And I don't really have- That's okay, we're, we're siblings, we're siblings. So it's all in, all in good company here, all in good company. And I don't really have any one particular um, person. I, I, I mean, there are a bunch of people that I owe a lot to, like uh, Keith Frayne, uh, Frayne who wrote the Human Metabolism textbook. Uh, Frain is just an amazing guy, like an amazing scientist. I've learned so much from his stuff. It's just um, unbelievable. Um, and and I, I also feel like I've learned um, a lot from people like Stu Phillips and people like Don Lehman. I owe them a lot. I don't really have, I, I mean, I know these guys, but I don't have any sort of mentorship relationship with them. Um, but a lot of what I've learned, I've gotten from certain people in the medical literature that I just read their stuff over and over like well you know Westerterp I've learned a lot there and uh doctors Robinheimer and Simpson um are you know these protein guys are just amazing and uh and I've also I've really learned a lot from like Kevin Hall and people who've forced me to um <clears throat> look at black swans and like challenge my beliefs and and 
change my views on things like, you know, the um, basically carb-insulin hypothesis and things like this. So there are some key science people that I really respect and I really appreciate and I owe them a lot, but like at kind of more at a distance where I've just been like gleaning their knowledge and I didn't really get that, um, that, that mentorship relationship that you and Layman have that I'm so jealous of. And I watch you guys on your videos and you're so adorable and I'm just bitter and angry and I'm just like, crying crying myself to sleep at night. he's the best he's the best right and for those of you who don't know uh dr don layman is a og in the protein field and really his greatest contribution was this meal threshold concept of leucine and that you require a certain amount of the essential amino acid to stimulate muscle protein synthesis again he has been in the protein field for i don't know 30 40 years um, and yes, you know, Ted, if you're not first, you're last. I'm the number one mentee. <laughs> Just kidding. But not really. Um, I joke. I joke. I feel very grateful that he's mentored me. And actually, he's challenged me. And he would also say that the mark of a good scientist or the mark of any good thinker is an individual who is open to perspective. And I believe that you've done a really, really great job on that without direct mentorship. It's incredibly unusual. You know, it's incredibly unusual, and I'm proud of you. You should be certainly proud of yourself. Oh, well, thank you. One other, one other question is, those that are really good read a lot. And I've listened to many of your other interviews, and it seems to me that you read quite a bit. Is that true? Oh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, like, uh, mostly just primary medical literature at this point. But then anything written by any of these people I really respect and admire, definitely. And how often are you reading? Uh, pretty much every day. I'm like, I'm a huge nerd. I'm a huge geek. I have basically no life. So yeah. Life, <laughs> life of the party. Here's my amino acid book. You know, one of my really good friends, Emily Frisella, always teases me, right? Because I have my uh, uh, amino acid book. And I think that you and I are really on the same page there. By the way, it is a really good time because we are taking information from very well-vetted scientists, thinking about it and being able to really translate the bench to the patient. And that's very important. A lot of the literature is done in clinical research settings. You know, I used to work at a, a CRU, which is a, a unit where it's a metabolic unit, metabolic ward. But the reality is, is most research takes time to translate to the public. And where I think it becomes very important and very valuable, uh, what you're doing, Ted, is that you're reading it and you're implementing. So you're teaching, you're taking the data and implementing, taking the protocols and actually implementing it to the general population, which in and of itself is incredible. And I know that everybody is very appreciative. So there's that. Oh, well, thank you. Yeah, that is what I'm trying to do. Yeah. You know, um, where can people find you? Gotcha. Okay. Well, I'm I'm on all the socials at Ted Naaman, Um Twitter mostly, Instagram at Ted. Very Naaman. active on Twitter, right? Very active on Twitter. Everybody seems to pick one social media platform that's kind of their the one they hate the least, and they're the most active on. So for me, it is probably Twitter. Um, yeah, and, and I think that the probably the the most um, interesting thing I've produced so far is the book, The PE Diet, which you can get at. Um, thepediet.com or tednaman.com or places like that. And the foundation, so it's a, a protein energy 
ratio. Do I have that correct? Correct. Mm -hmm. Okay. Very interesting. Very well done. And I actually have a copy of it. Um, even if you didn't send it or sign it to me, I still I have my own copy. Sorry. And it's very well done. <laughs> it's okay. Uh, it's very well done. And it really highlights some of the topics that you talked about in terms of protein, energy, fiber, which is, is so valuable. Um, and I'm hoping that you'll come back on. I'm hoping that you'll come back on this podcast. This really is about education and having transparent conversations with individuals whom I really respect. So thank you so much. Oh, wow. Thank you. No, great to talk to you. Um, and again, we're separated at birth, so it's not very <laughs> <know>. controversial. <laughs> we're, no, we're no, it's not. It's, it's, it's actually, actually, there's something that we don't agree on. Um, you want to know the one thing that we don't agree sure. on? Sure. Okay. There's one, only one principle that we don't agree on. And the one principle that we don't agree on is, you know, when I was doing the euglycemic clamps, and, and maybe this has changed for you, but I was doing euglycemic clamps at uh, WashU. And within those euglycemic clamps, we see the disposal of nutrients and mostly glucose. And obviously, they are very high insulin states, right? You're infusing glucose, you're infusing insulin, you're infusing palmitate, you're infusing tracers. And one of the things as a core fundamental belief of mine is that I believe obesity, insulin resistance is a skeletal muscle disease. And I think that you, I think this is where we have a, a different perspective. I think, you know, from my perspective, when you eat glucose disposal, I always think about skeletal muscle. I think about liver for liver, you know, there's glycogen and then skeletal muscle as, as it relates to glucose disposal. And listening to some of your other interviews, I have a feeling, or at least during those interviews, you believe that obesity is really a adipose tissue site first, a, uh, a fat issue first. So there, there's the one thing that we disagree on. Oh, actually, I, I don't think we do disagree on that because it, like for me, in order to be insulin resistant or diabetic, all three depots have to be filled, um, liver, muscle, and fat. And you can actually, as a diabetic, if you just do an hour of hard CrossFit and just this huge glycogen depletion uh, protocol, you'll literally instantly be non-diabetic temporarily. And so, so yeah, absolutely, muscle is the very fastest way to reverse insulin resistance and metabolic syndrome and diabetes. And you can do it almost instantaneously with, with uh, a huge workout protocol will deplete intramuscular triglycerides and glucose. And then all the fuels in your bloodstream just fall into your muscle down a concentration gradient. It doesn't even take insulin to do that. And so, no, I'm 100% on board with you. I'm just saying that the because everybody's so sedentary and nobody ever works out and everyone eats so much carbs, their muscles are basically 100% full all day, every day. And so I just don't even think about the muscle part anymore. And then I'm like, oh, you fill up your fat cells and then you fill up your liver and then you're diabetic. But no, the, the muscle is part of that energy storage depot triad that all three have to be filled for you to be insulin resistant. And you can instantly cure that by depleting muscles, but nobody's working out enough to make that happen. But no, so I actually agree with you completely. Like muscle is absolutely... Um, part of that picture. I'm not going to really say it's first or last because of the, the time scale is so radically shorter than the time scale for your fat cells. Right, 
Well, there you go. And I thought we were going to have our first uh, sibling argument, which we didn't. No, so I'm with there. you like 100%. <laughs> Um, again, thank you so much for coming on and I, I really appreciate it. And I know that the listener will really appreciate it. We'll link everything. I am hoping to have you back when you are in the New York area. Uh, Don will be coming out to do a series. If you are up for it, I'd love to have you out and it would be great. So that would be cool. there's that. All right. All right, my friend. Thank you so much. Oh, thank you. Great to talk to you. The Dr. Gabrielle Lyon podcast and YouTube are for general information purposes only and do not constitute the practice of medicine, nursing, or other professional health care services, including the giving of medical advice. And no patient-doctor relationship is formed. The use of information on this podcast, YouTube, or materials linked from the podcast or YouTube is at the user's own risk. The content of this podcast is not intended to substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Users should not disregard or delay in obtaining medical advice for any medical condition they may have and should seek the assistance of their healthcare professional for any such conditions. This is purely for entertainment and educational purposes only.